The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished, for every good work. Before we open God's Word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer in case you need to uh, use 1 John 1.9 to get back in fellowship so that we can learn under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us everything we need to know for, for life and for the spiritual life. That You have provided a salvation that includes everything and leaves nothing out. And that we receive everything in one package, not by works which we have done, but based exclusively on Your grace policy. And we get it all at the moment of faith in Christ alone for our salvation. Now, Father, as we continue our study of the spiritual life, we pray that we can understand the things we study and relate them to our own lives under the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Somebody facetiously emailed me this week that uh, we, we know and can measure, scientists can measure, that there's the distance that the moon is from the earth gradually increases every year. And they can measure this. And if you extrapolate backwards, what you discover is the moon only orbited the earth about 35 feet off the surface of the earth 80 million years ago. Well, that explains the death of the dinosaurs, at least the tall ones anyway. (laughs) Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. It's been, what, two or three weeks since we were last... In Romans 7, we had George here a couple of weeks ago, and then last week I had an attack of the crud and had no voice whatsoever. So we need to review a little bit to catch the context, and then we are going to cover some territory tonight, simply because, unlike most studies that we do, I'm trying to get through the end of chapter 8 by the end of July. This is prep work so that I can teach this in about an hour and a half when I go to Russia. So what y'all are getting, remember, what y'all are getting in about, what I think it came out to about 18 weeks or 16 weeks to begin with, they'll be getting in about an hour and a half. 
Yeah, well, in Russian, which makes it more difficult. I've been praying for the gift of tongues, but don't have it yet, so we'll just wait for miracles. Romans chapter 7, the context is Romans 6, 7, and 8, and it is crucial to understand the dynamics of what's going on in terms of Paul's argument. Now, I always use the word argument, and I realize I got myself in a little trouble the other day when I was uh, uh, talking with someone, and they said, well, I don't want to argue about it. I said, well, I'm not using the word argument like that. In fact, I hardly ever use the word argument in terms of some kind of volatile discussion. I always use the word argument in a legal sense, presenting a case to establish the truth of a point. That's what an argument is. And the writers of Scripture all seem to present arguments for their points. They are arguing for a particular thing. And in Romans, Paul is arguing a case for the righteousness of God in in man to to the Gentiles and to the Jews. And we go back to Romans 1. He talks about the fact that the righteous, who are righteous by faith, shall live. And that's the theme of this whole epistle. The righteous by faith shall live. Unfortunately, that's usually translated, the righteous shall live by faith. But it is the righteous by faith, because we become righteous not on the basis of experience, but on the basis of what Christ did on the cross, and at the instant of salvation, His righteousness is imputed to us, and then we live. So the key part of Romans 1-5 through is, directed to the whole issue of imputation of righteousness, and then, this is 1 through 4, and, or excuse me, 1 through 5, and then chapters 6 through 8 are talking about the results or the consequences of that imputation. So when we come to Romans 7, which is a highly debated chapter, and I'm not going to take the time in this study to go through the ins and outs of the debate, But the debate centers around whether or not this is Paul's personal experience, whether it is the experience of of believers, or whether it is the experience of an unbeliever. And we'll see some issues on that in a minute. But Romans 7 comes in the middle of a discussion in Romans 6 through 8 that has to do with sanctification. That tells us right off the bat that the object of application for this section is believers, not unbelievers. So Romans 7, would it would seem very out of place if Romans 7 were to deal with the experience of unbelievers prior to salvation. Paul is talking about the experience of believers after they are saved in the process of the spiritual life and the struggle that they are, that they encounter. In Romans 6, we saw the foundation for the spiritual life, which is our position in Christ. This is a forensic reality, not an experiential reality. We are not new creatures in the sense that we are made new in terms of our experience, but we are made new because of our position in Christ, and we are given a new nature. And that new nature is in contrast to the old man who is positionally dead, but not actually dead. The old man is positionally dead because... It no longer has the sole authority, the sole position of tyranny over the believer that the sin nature had prior to salvation. So, by virtue of our identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, positional truth, what that means is that the power or the tyranny of the sin nature is broken. That does not mean that we have a somehow 
a sin nature that's not as evil, not as wicked, not as uh, insidious, not as rebellious as before salvation. It always surprises me. It shouldn't surprise me. But it does when I run into Christians. See, Christians should be the most realistic people of all. They should not be living divorced from reality. And I'm always amazed at how theologians are uh, seem to get this naive view that somehow if you're a believer, you're just automatically, by virtue of your salvation, not quite as sinful, not quite as, as uh, evil, or not quite as wicked as you would be uh, before salvation. In fact, I was astounded by the blatancy of a comment made by a former member of my church and fellow doctoral student at Dallas Seminary in an article he wrote that was published in an Evangelical Theological Society uh, uh, journal several years ago as a critique of Lewis Berry Chafer. And he said, well, Chafer's basic problem is that he, he had a low view of regeneration that he didn't realize that regeneration really limited the sin nature. (laughs) See, but that's what you have to do if you get into lordship salvation. And lordship salvation is just permeating every single, almost every institution of of Christian learning that we have. Almost, In in fact, I I was talking on the phone uh, yesterday with Tommy Ice. And Tommy was telling me, he read, read me a quote out of the Baptist Standard, which is the newspaper that the Southern Baptists put out every, every week. And they have, are in there right, usually about this time of year. You never hear about it up here too much except that when they announce they're going to evangelize the Jews and then some liberal reporter goes out and interviews some uh, Jewish rabbi who's offended because somebody's targeting them for salvation. But... Um, other than that, you don't hear about the Southern Baptists up here too much, but they usually have their annual convention this time of year, and down south you'll always hear something rustling around the papers about what the Baptists are up to. But they're, uh, in their Baptist faith and standard, which is, they have an odd doctrinal practice among Southern Baptists. You don't have to believe anything to be a Southern Baptist. Now, most Southern Baptists don't know that. But, but they, they, they see the key thinking for a Baptist is that they are a, quote, non-creedal people, unquote. That means they don't have a doctrinal statement that you have to affirm. So if there's no set doctrinal statement you have to affirm to be a Baptist, then you don't have to believe anything to be a Baptist. Other than, historically, immersion and separation of church and state. That's really it. Uh, Of course, I've gone to blows with Baptists over that, but that's really what it comes down to. Well, they're changing their Baptist faith and message... uh, statement to read that you're saved by faith in Christ as Lord. Now that's a subtle but firm statement of Lordship salvation. So that's becoming the dominant thinking even among Southern Baptists now is Lordship salvation. So when I spend a lot of time talking about the problems of Lordship salvation, it is simply to protect and prepare you for what is going on in, in the world out there. Now we're a little protected here because we're blocked from a certain amount of heresy that goes out over the airways, either radio or television. Some of you who are living over in Rhode Island and Massachusetts get some of that, but over here we're rather protected. But the real world out there, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of heresy going on and confusion about grace and about the relationship of morality to spirituality and law to grace. 
And that is at the very heart of what Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 7. But at the heart of lordship salvation, I find, is this whole issue that somehow, if you're a believer, the, 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 the inherent insidious wickedness of your sin nature is just not as, as um, it, it, it's not as bad as it is if you're an unbeliever. And yet, Paul seems to argue just the opposite in Romans 7. So you have people who take positions that Romans 7 really isn't talking about Paul. It's not really talking about his life after salvation. I read an article by a professor at a seminary just last week, and he argued that this is all um, talking about the pre-salvation experience. It is not talking about a believer. So we have to address that as we go through Romans chapter 7. Now, at the end of our... In Romans 6.14, Paul made the statement, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You see, we have to understand that the spiritual life is a life based on grace. It is not based on external, uh, external regulations or external uh, ritual. It is based on the principle of grace, and grace is the expression of God's integrity towards man based on everything that Christ did on the cross. So that means that it is grounded in reality and a realistic view of our continued sinfulness, that we still possess a sin nature that is as capable of committing any and every sin that we could commit as an unbeliever. There is nothing that we can not do as a believer that we couldn't do as an unbeliever. And we can be, in fact, we might even be worse because after salvation we're plunged into the angelic conflict. We walk around with a spiritual target on our back and we now have a real struggle to, to deal with. So we might even get involved in a lot of things that we would not have gotten involved in before we were saved. In verse 14 of chapter 6, Paul introduces law, but then he takes a, uh, as Paul is, is wont to do, he goes down another, it's not really a rabbit trail, he just decides to go back and review from a diff, slightly different perspective what he said in the first 13 verses, and that is that because of our position in Christ, the power of sin has been broken. But he raised the issue of law, and now in chapter 7 he comes back to talk about the believer's relationship to the law. And in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7, we saw that, that he uses the analogy of death in a marriage, Excuse me. That because of a death occurs, that breaks the, the marriage. A man is married. A man and a woman are married. When one dies, then the the law is released, and there is now freedom to remarry. And that's all he's saying. It's not a discourse on divorce. We saw that. And what he is saying is, by analogy, is that the believer dies to the law at the point of salvation. Dies to sin. Therefore, the law no longer has any. Uh, authority over the believer. He is released from the Mosaic law. He's dead to the law, verse 4. Now, having said all of that, it might appear as if Paul were saying a number of negative things about the Mosaic law. So he raises the question then, he he advances his thought through these rhetorical questions back in 6.1, 6.15, 7.1, and now in verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law... Sin. This is what we covered the last time we, we were together on this. Is the law sin? 
He says, may it never be. Meganoita in the Greek, which is the strongest negation possible. Not only no, but heck no. I don't want to shock too many of you. He's making an extremely strong negation here. It is uh, not sin. Why do we say that? Well, there's four or five reasons why the law is not sin taken from this passage. First of all, he calls the law just, holy, and spiritual in verses 12 and verses 14. It's called just, holy, good, and spiritual in verses 12 through 14. In verse 7, he emphasizes the fact that the law reveals or illuminates sin. It brings it to our attention. The law provokes sin. It provokes sin. This is in verse 11. In 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul says the law is, is useful if it is used lawfully. That is, if it, is, it has a place, it has a role, and as long as it functions in that role and you don't use it for salvation or sanctification, then it has a proper place and it's, it's useful. It's a good, uh, good, uh, it is a good basis and, a, and um, uh, precedent for understanding what law should be like in the human realm, what a national government should base its law on, and it's a good model for things of that nature. And then fifth, the law's purpose originally was to promote life. That was its original purpose, was to promote life, and it does that by revealing our sinfulness. So these are five reasons taken from this chapter to show that the law is inherently good and not evil. He says, what shall we say then is the law sin? May it never be. Now, when we came to this the last time, we looked at the fact that Christians have always had problems with the law. There are always groups of Christians who have thought that the Mosaic law is the means of sanctification. And I put this up on the overhead here. In this way, in the first three centuries, well, we'll just start with the end of the first century to about 300 A.D. in those, those two centuries. The church believed in a literal interpretation of Scripture, and you can go back, and even though there's not a very thought-through analytical development of the distinction between Israel and the church, you can certainly demonstrate, and it has been demonstrated, that they did believe that there was a distinction between Israel and the church. But what happens by the end of the 3rd century A.D. is the introduction of allegorical interpretation. And with allegorical interpretation, Israel and the church begin to be blurred so that the church replaces Israel. Now, this is a broad term that I'm introducing to you, and that is replacement theology. Not just covenant theology. Covenant theology is not the only form of replacement theology. Replacement theology is any theological system that replaces Israel in God's plan with the church so that all of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Abrahamic covenant, the promises God made to Israel in Deuteronomy on the Palestinian or real estate covenant, promises made to David in the Davidic covenant, promises made in the new covenant, are now applied to the church and will never be literally fulfilled to Israel. That's what I mean by replacement theology. So that the church, the Roman Catholic Church, which dominates the, the whole Middle Ages up until the Reformation in 1517, is dominated by replacement theology. Well, if the church replaces Israel, 
then the means to sanctification for the church will be the same means to sanctification as you had with Israel. So all that happened is that, that they would say that, that because Christ fulfilled the sacrifices, the sacrifices are no longer to be utilized. Christ fulfills the sacrifices. That's salvation, but sanctification is by the law. In other words, sanctification is now by morality. Well, at the Reformation in 1517, with Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, the uh, Anabaptists, and all of the other groups, they did great as far as applying, because what they have to do is reverse allegorical interpretation to literal interpretation, and they only apply it at the early stages to the doctrines of soteriology. They don't get beyond that. In fact, it took them a hundred years before they started applying it to uh, 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 eschatology. And all that they're doing is they're getting salvation right, but they're still, all of these groups are still adopting a replacement view of theology. The church replaces Israel. And in the development of Lutheran theology, the development of uh, later Anglican theology, the later development of Reformed theology, the, the uh, development of Anabaptist theology, they all see Israel replaced by the church. Same conclusion. Spiritual life, then, is based on morality or the obedience to the law as opposed to grace. It's not really... Now, there's a few lights here or there where people see some differences, but this is, this is painting with a broad brushstroke. This is why no one, until you start getting into the 19th century, in, in uh, not just dispensationalism, but some other movements, for example, the Holiness Movement, the Pentecostal Movement, the Keswick Movement, they start returning an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Well, there was no emphasis on the Holy Spirit in Israel in the Old Testament. So you go to some of your classic, classic works. When I did my doctoral work, I took a course on the Holy Spirit, and we had to read the two, what's considered to be the two greatest works ever done in the history of the church on, on pneumatology. One was written by John Owen, who was a very well-known Puritan uh, theologian. He was Oliver Cromwell's chaplain. And it, on the Holy Spirit, and then a work done by Abraham Kuyper on the Holy Spirit. They don't even mention baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit. They're just ignored. Because why? There's no emphasis on the unique role of God the Holy Spirit in the sanctifying work of the church age. It's based on morality and, and uh, the Mosaic Law. So, this sets a stage for failure to understand the spiritual life and confusing the law as a means to spirituality. So we looked at problems with the law. We looked at why Christians have always had problems with the law and the various problems of trying to associate the law or obedience to the law with salvation or obedience to the law with sanctification. And we looked at, and I want to remind you again, of Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 Verse 3, where Paul says to the Galatians, Are you so foolish, having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to be matured by means of the flesh, the sin nature? And what were they doing specifically? They were trying to obey the Mosaic Law in order to advance to spiritual maturity. So there Paul clearly identifies uh, moral obedience to the law as a production of the flesh or the sin nature. So Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, it is not, not at all, never. On the contrary, 
So the answer is given, and he develops the answer in the second part of 7 down through chapter 12, where he says, basically, the law is not sin, but it defines sin, it exposes sin, it reveals sin. And it does that by emphasizing what the absolutes are. And this takes us back to the whole concept of righteousness in the book of Romans. That righteousness is the standard of God's integrity. And so the law is an expression. It it is a codification, one codification, of that standard for man, specifically for Israel. Remember, it's a contract. The Mosaic Law is a contract written between God and Israel. It's not between God and anybody else. And we study the nature of contracts that you don't come back after you sign a contract and change the definition of the terms, change the meaning of the participants, or try to allegorize or to make, the, uh, make these terms metaphors so that uh, it doesn't really mean once a month, it means once a year. It really doesn't mean me, it means somebody else. You know, that's just symbolic terms. So we, you don't change the terms. So the law gives specificity to these absolutes in God's character, and that then reveals sin. Okay, that kind of takes us up to where we were the last time. Now, Paul, at this point, we see in his answer something that has not been seen up to this point in Romans. He says, May it never be on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about covering, coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, up to this point, we have had no use of the first person singular pronoun in the Greek. But now it begins to appear. In verse 7, we, have a, um, first, we start having a first person singular verb. And starting down in verse, by the time we get down to, I think it's about verse 9, Paul starts shifting to using the first person singular pronoun in the Greek, ego, which is added for emphasis. Up to this point, he just uses the first person singular verb. In, in Greek, like in any inflected language, you have a verb when it has an ending. If it has a first person singular ending, then you don't need to, it, it will not have a specifically stated subject, but you can add ego, which is the pronoun I, you can add that, it's almost a redundancy or it would be in English because it's repeated by the suffix of the verb, but by putting the, specifically stating the pronoun, you add emphasis. Seven times in Romans 7, 7 through 25, Paul emphasizes the first person singular by adding the first person pronoun. He is emphasizing the fact that that he personally would not have come to know sin except through the law. So he is talking about his personal experience. Now there's a lot of discussion about whether Paul's talking about his personal experience or he's somebody else or he's just personifying Adam. But it must be Paul because he's talking about the Mosaic Law. He gives specificity to a Mosaic Law commandment. It can't be Adam because the commandment in the garden did not cause Adam to sin. See, in uh, verse 9, Paul says, And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive. Well, that can't be Adam, 
Because if that were Adam, then when God said, don't eat from the fruit of the tree, that would automatically have made Adam a sinner. But that's, that did not happen. It can't be talking about uh, Adam in any way because there's no knowledge of the law before uh, the, the um, Mosaic Covenant. And that's mentioned by Paul back in Romans chapter 5. So it's, it is clearly talking about Paul's personal pre-salvation experience coming to recognize his own sinfulness. He says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. And the word there for know is gnosko, which means to know by experience. He said, I would not have come to know sin, that is to know it by experience, except through the law. I would not have come to learn that I was a sinner except through the law. For I would not have known, and here he shifts his verb to oida. Oida has to do with an intuitive knowledge. So it's, it's interesting the way he, he shifts the synonyms here, because he's saying, I would not have come to know from experience sin except through the law. For I would not have known intuitively about coveting. See, man does not intuitively know about the details. Well, he knows there's right or wrong. That's Romans chapter 2. He has a conscience, so he knows there's right or wrong. Now, from culture to culture, those standards may change. For example, we saw the, the video on Peace Child and the, the, or the, the Sawi tribe in, in Papua New Guinea thinks that the highest value is to be able to deceive someone to the point of being able to take their life. So that's a distorted concept. But they do have a, an absolute there. And the fact that they have absolutes is a recognition that there is a God who has provided those absolutes. So Paul says, I would not have come to know the details here unless it had been revealed specifically through the law. And he mentions the last commandment. This is the only commandment of the ten that focuses on mental attitude sin. And once you come to grips with the implications of you shall not cover, uh, you shall not covet, it is then that we realize how pervasive sin is in our lives. So Paul says, it is coming to understand the implications of the Tenth Commandment that I realized that I was a sinner. Verse 8, but sin, and here should sin all through this section, for the most part, should be understood as the sin nature. But the sin nature, taking opportunity through the commandment. Now the word here for translated opportunity is the Greek word aforme, which means a starting point, a point of origin, an occasion, a pretext, has a military use in terms of a base of operations or a bridgehead. And I like that, that concept of a base of operations. The sin nature uses, will utilize the wickedness of the sin nature. Remember Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? The sin nature uses even something good like the law as a base of operations to generate further sin. And that's what Paul's argument is. The sin nature looks at the commandment and then uses that as an opportunity or a, a starting point, a bridgehead, to generate even further sin. <coughs> but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, not just one kind, but every kind, because what has happened? Once he realizes that coveting is a sin... He begins to see it in every thought, every action, every motivation. And the more he thinks about not coveting, the more he realizes how much he covets. 
And so he realizes that sin permeates every aspect of his thinking. It produced in me coveting of every kind. That's what he means by producing in me. It doesn't mean that the law caused him to sin. But by understanding the law, it produces an understanding of how devastating sin is and how it is involved in every aspect of our lives. Verse 9, And I was once alive apart from the law. Now, what does that mean? Once alive. Look at different categories of living. We talk about physical life. We talk about spiritual life. We talk about regeneration. We talk about different categories of, of uh, whether it's life in the spirit or and carnal death, different categories of death. What does he mean? I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Is he suggesting that it's not until we realize that something is a sin that we die spiritually? No. Meganoito. Not at all. What he is saying here is that he thought he was alive. This is the typical position of the unbeliever. They think everything's great. They have life. They have happiness. They're, they're going through their life, enjoying everything with no uh, awareness, no cognizance that they are spiritually dead and that they are under divine judgment. And that's what he's talking about. I was once alive apart from the law. When I was apart from the law and had no knowledge of the law, I thought I was alive and was doing just fine. But when the commandment came, that is, when I understood the significance and meaning of thou shalt not covet, sin became alive and I died. At that point, when he understands the absolute standard of a righteous God, the sin nature is stirred, its activity is energized, and the reality of sin is apparent, and he realizes that he is spiritually dead and cannot have life and cannot have a relationship with God. So then he says, and when he comes to this, he says, sin became alive, and at that point he uses the, the Greek word anazao, ana, which is a preposition indicating again, a second time, and zao meaning life, indicates that, that he, he became, that, that sin became alive again. It's not indicating that it, he had no sin before, it's just a sort of almost a, uh, a resurrection, or it's, or it's emphasized, it is, it, it, it becomes even more apparent than it ever was before. And he dies. He recognizes that he is spiritually dead. In verse 10, And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. So he recognizes here in verse 10 that one of the purposes for the, spiritual, for, for the Mosaic Law was in the Old Testament economy was that it produced life. And that was the promise that God made to the Israelites that if you follow the law, I will bless you and you will have a quality of life and a capacity of life. I will bless you financially. I will bless you. I will give you prosperity. I will bless you agriculturally. I will bless you militarily and you will have a quality of life if you obey the law. But what he realizes is that in his failure to be able to fulfill the divine mandate, he, it results in death for him. He realizes his separation from God and his inability to meet the divine standard. For sin, verse 11, for the sin nature, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, that is, through the commandment, killed me. Sin is deceptive. We often think that we're doing something wonderful when in fact our motive 
but it has to do with covetousness, with greed, with arrogance, with some form of lust, power lust, approbation lust, some other category of lust, and the result is that it's really uh, self-destructive. So the heart is deceitful above all things, and that's the characteristic of the sin nature. It majors in self-deception. And then he comes to his conclusion in verse 12. So then, the law is holy. This is the answer to the question. Everything from the middle of verse 7 down through verse 11 is simply his development of the principle that the law reveals sin. And then it leads to the conclusion, the answer to the question, is the law sin? No. The law is holy, hagias, meaning it is set apart. Now, get the idea almost that at passages like this, the term hagias comes close to meaning unique. Hagias itself, rough breathing mark, H-A-G-I-O-S, has to do with something that is set apart to the service of God. And as something that is set apart to to the service of God means that it is distinct and or unique. It has a unique function. So he says, then the law has been set apart to the service of God and is distinct for that purpose. And therefore, the commandment is holy, righteous, dikaios, meaning that it reflects the absolute standard of God. It is righteous and good, agathos, meaning intrinsic good. It reflects the intrinsic good of the law. So the point here is in verse 7 to 13, is that the law is good, its purpose is to reveal sin, but that the sin nature is so insidiously wicked that it in turn will use the law to promote its own evil agenda and make man want to do what the law forbids. So the sin nature turns even something that is good to an evil or wicked purpose. So then we raise the next question. Therefore, verse 13, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Again, meganoita, may it never be. Rather, it was sin, that is the sin nature, in order that it might be shown or revealed. And here we have an aorist, uh, passive, subjunctive. The subjunctive shows potentiality and purpose here, that it might be shown or revealed. It's from uh, uh, phaneo, which which means, or, or phino, which means to appear, to uncover, to reveal, or to display. And what he is saying, rather it was the sin nature for the purpose that it, the sin nature, might be revealed to be sinful. That's how that should be understood. He asked the question in verse 13, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? No, rather it was sin. And the purpose here, when it's translated in the English, rather, translates just the simple construction, Allah, which is but, but sin. But it was sin, the, the verb is left out, but sin, the sin nature, that it, in order that it might reveal or manifest sin. So the point of the law is to show that the sin nature produces sin And in that, it reveals to us our our spiritual bankruptcy, 
the fact that we are spiritually dead and that then, as he goes on to say, might be shown to be sin by affecting, that is, by producing or bringing to light my spiritual death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin, the sin nature, that is, might become utterly sinful. And the point is that by it's like the sin nature lurks around in the shadows. Deceptive, deceitful, counterfeiting the good, and then the law comes along and turns on a spotlight right on the sin nature, and it is seen for all of the horrid ugliness that it is. But that's the role of the law. And then he says in verse 14, he explains that the law itself does not cause death because it is, by its nature, spiritual. But it is man who has been sold under the rulership or bondage to sin which causes his defeat. You see, man is born in bondage to sin. Now, that bondage is broken at salvation. But what happens? Five minutes later, we decide to follow the sin nature and we put ourselves right back under the tyranny and the bondage of the sin nature. So, Paul says, no, it's not the law that is wrong. It is man that is wrong because we are a flesh. That is, often his term for fallen mankind, for the sin nature. We are of sin, from the source of the sin nature. But I am of sin, the sin nature sold into bondage to sin. Now, one point I need to make here before we go on. In verses 7 through 12, this is Paul's pre-salvation experience. We know that because all the verbs are past tense. But suddenly when you come to verse 13 we see a shift in the verbs. From this point on, the verbs are present tense. Verse 14, For we know, present tense, that the law is spiritual, present tense, but I am, present tense, of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. He is talking about the present experience of the believer, that we are not somehow purified and living at a higher level, experiencing the uh, victorious life just because we are saved. We are still of flesh. We still have that sin nature. We still carry in our the genetic structure of our bodies a sin nature. Now, by the way, what we see a lot of today is a lot of discussion about whether homosexuality is carried in the genetic patterns, whether uh, uh, alcoholism is in the genes, all of these things. In other words, it's just another attempt to shift responsibility. There are trends from the sin nature. Every person has them. The sin nature is passed on genetically, and these, gen- these genes have, give us certain weaknesses, certain strengths. Everybody has them. They do, they're not determinative, though. It's interesting. I was watching uh, one of the morning shows this morning, and they were talking about a new, new study that they've done using monkeys on alcoholics. And the conclusion was that while genetics play a role, they are not determinative, so that the issue is not what your, whether your a parent was an alcoholic or whether alcoholism is in the family. In fact, they even went so far to say as we've got as to suggest they didn't make it dogmatic, but they were suggesting that we have to do away with the whole alcoholism is a disease model, which of course is the foundation of AA. 
And AA, they said, only has an 85% success rate. I've never been in favor of AA because it promotes an a erroneous religious concept that is contrary to the Bible. And um, I think it can help people. But see, my job as a pastor is not to help people apart from the Word of God, but to help people only by the Word of God. And that is something that people miss. Is I always like the, concept, the statement by Jay Adams. It always strikes people as pretty harsh. I would rather somebody die muddy drunk in the streets than to make them think that they could make life work one little bit on the basis of their own power apart from God. Now, that's a hard statement. But see, most people want to go out there and they want people to somehow find a measure of comfort and stability and success in life, even if it's apart from God. But see, that's fine. You can go to AA and you can go to all kinds of different self-help groups and if you want to become functional, that's your business. My business is to make you mature as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're not going to reach spiritual maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ if you're trying to solve your problems using human viewpoint techniques. Period. It's harsh, but that's reality. Human viewpoint concept, uh, you know, the, the end does not justify the means, and a right thing done in a wrong way is still wrong. And that's how that relates. Now, if, you're, if you've had a problem with alcoholism, and you've gone to AA, and don't use that as an excuse to run out and tie one on tonight. <laughs> that's misapplication. The point is simply that our success and our failures in life our propensities to whatever sins plague you is not something that you can, uh, can blame on genetics and say, well, that's just the way I was born. That's my family trait. There, there may be tendencies there, but we all have them. Every single human being has some weaknesses in one direction or another. For you, it may be alcoholism. For somebody else, it's approbation lust. For somebody else, it's laziness. But everybody has... The issue is that under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit by applying doctrine, then you can conquer this. And that's the whole issue here in Romans 7. Paul is talking about his present experience as a mature believer. Because you see, even with mature believers, that sin nature is just as powerful and we can get out of fellowship and it can overwhelm us instantly. It happened to Paul on two or three occasions when all of a sudden Paul is out in carnality for several months instead of following the leading of God the Holy Spirit. So Paul is talking about the present reality of the sin nature and how it can still enslave us whether you're an immature baby believer or whether you are a mature believer. Now, in verse 15, he starts to outline this struggle. And I think if we're honest, it's a struggle that every one of us has, has felt at one time or another, sometimes more intensely than other times, but we all go through this. It says in verses 15 through 17, he is really talking about the fact that man, each of us, is unable to do inherent good. We're just incapable of doing the good. And in these verses, he talks about the fact that we're unable to prevent ourselves from sinning says, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. In other words, man on his own is not able to stop the sin nature. But if I do the thing that I don't want to do, 
I agree with the law, confessing that it, that is the law, is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. Now, he's not talking about some split personality here in verse 17. When he talks about no longer am I the one doing it, he is talking about Paul, the believer, as a new creature in Christ. That new nature. Versus the old nature, the sin nature. This is the struggle that we have. In Romans 7, the struggle is between the believer and his new nature versus the old nature. In Galatians, the struggle is between the Holy Spirit and the sin nature. But here it's between the new nature. So we have a new nature that has a desire and inclination to do right, but it's incapable of bringing that to conclusion on its own apart from the Holy Spirit. And that's part of the problem in Romans 7. And if, as I've noted, we don't get to the Holy Spirit until verse 2 of the next chapter. But that does not mean that, that Paul, that in verse, excuse me, in chapter 7, that Paul is unaware of the Holy Spirit. He is talking about present tense as a mature believer. That at any time we can get out of fellowship and then we have this struggle with sin and we can't conquer it until we deal with it on the basis of the Holy Spirit. So in verses 15 through 17, we see that man is incapable of stopping his own sinfulness. And then in verse 18 through 20, he reverses it, and he's talking about the fact that man is incapable of doing that which is inherently good. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present. That is, I, as, a, as a believer with a new nature, I desire to do that which is good, that which is intrinsically good. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the intrinsic good is not. I'm just not capable. On the basis of, the, of, of flesh alone, apart from the Holy Spirit, man cannot do that which is inherently good. Verse 19, for the good that I wish, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. Now this is a problem that every believer struggles with at some point or another. We all realize that we do things we really know better. We know that we shouldn't do them. We know that it's wrong. We know it's sin. We know it's wrong while we're doing it. But we still do it as if we can't control ourselves. And once we give ourselves over to the sin nature then we're put back in bondage. It's only The only solution is rebound recovery using 1 John 1, 9 and confessing our sins. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5, it is so clear in the Greek, it says, walk by means of the Spirit and you will not bring to completion the works of the sin nature. And he uses that double negative in the Greek plus a subjunctive verb, which is the strongest form of negation, And he says, walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible for you to bring to completion the lust of the flesh. Now, if we were to take the time to go over to James 1, we we don't do it, but in James 1, we have a pathology of the sin nature presented, and it starts with lust. Lust then produces sin, and sin then produces death, and this is carnal or temporal death in James 1. And what... And if you put that together with Galatians 5:16, which says if you're walking by the Spirit, so we'll put the Holy Spirit over here, if you're, as long as you're walking by the Spirit, 
you will not bring to completion the lust. So it starts with lust, which brings to completion, which when it is brought to completion produces sin, according to James 1. But if you're walking by the Spirit, you're going to break this. You may still have the lust. You may still have that desire to do the sin. But as long as you're walking by the Spirit, lust won't conceive and produce sin. So what has to happen? Once you sin, known sin or unknown sin, it doesn't matter. Once you commit a sin, you have completed lust. You have brought lust to completion. That means that when you sin, a known sin or an unknown sin, you have stopped walking by means of the Spirit. Because according to Galatians 5.16, as long as we're walking by the Spirit, we can't go from lust to sin. So once that happens... We know that we have already stopped walking by the Spirit, and at that point we have to go through some type of recovery. And since it is sin that causes us to move out of fellowship, then what causes us to return to fellowship must deal with that sin. That's why 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sin, and if we've committed an unknown sin, it won't be long before we commit a known sin once we're walking by the flesh. Just, just wait a minute or two if you're not sure. And then you confess the known sin, and He forgives us from all unrighteousness, known and unknown. Every sin is at that point forgiven. So this is the struggle. The believer operating on the sin nature is going to do what he doesn't want to do, and he's not going to be able to do what he knows he should do. He's in a position of frustration, and this is where Paul is in this section. In verse 21, he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. That evil is present in me. This is an extremely strong statement for Paul to make. uh, That evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. It is the word kalos, which means evil, and it is an extremely harsh statement that here a believer... And we know he's a believer because of what he says in verse 22. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. That means he has to be a believer. But even though he joyfully concurs with the law in the inner man, he still realizes that there's a principle of evil in us. We have a sin nature that is capable of any and all categories of sin and evil. The only thing that restrains it in the believer is the Holy Spirit. For I joyfully concur... I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. Now I want you to notice, mind is used here in verse 23 and again in verse 25, because the spiritual life is based on thinking. The spiritual life is based on thinking. And this is the, the Greek word nous, which is the thinking part that where the thinking takes place in the believer. It is not the innermost thought part of the, of the mind, which is the cardia, but it includes that. It is the broader term, and it does include the cardia, which is the innermost part. Remember our diagram that the Bible talks about two spheres of thinking. The outer sphere is the nous, which is the mentality, and the innermost part is the cardia. Now, sometimes when Paul talks about the news, he's including both the cardia and the news. He's talking about the totality of the thinking part 
of the individual. So he is showing here that the spiritual life and the struggle is what takes place between the ears. It is mental. The spiritual warfare, spiritual battle for the believer takes place in his mind. It is a battle for what controls your mind. That's why we have to renovate our thinking in the spiritual life. I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. This is the principle that is there from doctrine and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So this is the exact thing that he has spoken of earlier in Romans chapter 6, where 6.16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death. So as a believer, when we sin, we make ourselves a prisoner. We put ourselves back into bondage to the sin nature, which then controls us and produces temporal and carnal death. Verse 24 he, he reaches just a stage of frustration. Wretched man that I am, who shall set me free from the body of this death, temporal death? What resolves the problem? As a believer, I know I should be living a certain way. I'm out of fellowship. I'm struggling. What is the solution? And then he says, thanks be to God. Literally, grace belongs to God. It's, the word translated thanks is charis for grace. Grace to God Grace be to God, or grace belongs to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. Notice, it's not with my emotions, it's not with my feelings, it's not with uh, my, my sentimental love. It is with my mind, with the doctrine in my soul. I myself, with the doctrine in my soul, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, this is the great battle the believer faces. Apart from the Holy Spirit, he's got a battle going on inside him between the new nature and the old nature. But what gives the believer victory is when he realizes that ultimately the battle is between the Holy Spirit and the sin nature, and that the solution lies in walking by means of the Holy Spirit. And that is the subject of chapter 8. For he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So it is the Holy Spirit that is going to be the resolution to the conflict of Romans chapter 7, and we will get into that in detail in Romans 8, starting next Wednesday night, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that, that even though we experience this struggle and we still have a sin nature that is capable of every heinous act imaginable, that your grace is still extended to us and your grace still provides a perfect solution to the post-salvation struggle that we experience as believers and that you have given us a simple recovery solution and that is through confession of sin. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned tonight, that they would be a source of comfort and encouragement to us as we advance in our spiritual life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.